legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. During the past decade, three companies have revolutionized the way we shop, socialize, and find information. I'm talking, of course, about Amazon, Facebook, and Google. While these companies have made our lives easier in many ways, my guest today argues that they're also eroding autonomy and individuality. His name is Franklin Ford, and he's the author of the book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. And today on the show, Franklin talks about how the utopian ideals of Silicon Valley have led to an internet that's becoming more and more homogenized and centralized. We then dig into the vast amounts of personal information these companies collect about us and how they're using it on us. And then Franklin argues while these companies make us feel more autonomous, they're actually diminishing our choices and reducing our individuality. He then provides suggestions on what you can do to maintain your sense of individualism in today's atmosphere. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash worldwithoutmind, where you find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Franklin Four, welcome to the show. Pleasure. So you just published a book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Sounds ominous. What was what was the impetus behind behind this book? Yeah, it's a wee bit apocalyptic-minded. I wrote this book. I had just gotten fired as editor of The New Republic, which was an incredibly uh, traumatic experience for me. I'd worked at The New Republic for a really long time and would, had just come off this cycle of where the magazine had been bought by Chris Hughes, who was 28 years old, worth $700 million. He'd been Mark Zuckerberg's roommate in college and one of the first, really a co-founder of Facebook. And he'd arrived at the New Republic with extremely lofty ambitions. He said, I share your commitment to serious journalism. And the New Republic had been, was a hundred year old magazine devoted to politics, policy, and fairly high culture. Um, he said, I share your de- devotion to, to seriousness. I've got a lot of money and you guys have been struggling to master this digital world. Well, I, I co-founded social media. So it seemed awesome. And for a time it was extremely aw- awesome. But then there was a moment where he said, look, we really need to generate revenue. And the only way for us to do that is to produce pieces that will be very successful on Facebook. And so we lived this just super compressed period in media history where we made this transition for being a magazine that 
prided itself on its originality and its seriousness to a magazine that was trying to pander to the algorithms of Facebook, trying to produce journalism that would prove to be popular on Facebook. And so it was it was a it was a really it was a really rushed transition and a new CEO came aboard, a guy from Yahoo. And as soon as he came aboard, I, I kind of knew that I was doomed because it took him two weeks to meet with me. Anyway, so I ended up I ended up realizing that I was about to get fired. So I quit and a bunch of other people quit the magazine and it became this object lesson in the media about how Silicon Valley was swallowing journalism and why that was going bad. And I, that was I, it just got me thinking along the lines of the ways in which journalism actually was a case study for the broader world in that everybody in the world is becoming so dependent on these platforms, on Google, on Facebook, on Apple, on Amazon. And uh, I, I wanted to both uh, productively channel my anger and also explore this problem that was it had been ex- it, extremely interesting to me long before I'd, I'd run into trouble at the New Republic. Right. And it's kind of a, this idea, the sort of the, the concern about these tech companies is really hit the zeitgeist because we're seeing it with Amazon, with Facebook especially, uh, Twitter even. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it's like in the air. It's in the yeah. social the, yeah. the milieu. Well, when I started writing this book, actually Amazon was, the, was really my initial impetus just because I had been active in the Authors Guild, which is a group that organizes on behalf of writers. And when Amazon had been renegotiating its book contracts with the big publishers, it was it was applying super brutal tactics and said, we dominate this market and basically you have to accept our terms or your toast. And they would strip, if a publisher was challenging Amazon, they would strip the buy button off of its books or they would point readers in other directions. And so that was initially the thing that got me interested in these questions. But when I did, I, like I said, when I started writing this book, people looked at me like I was uh, a hippie howling into the wind. These companies had such cultural prestige. And by the time my book came out, the zeitgeist had already started to shift. I think in no small measure, thanks to the election and all the questions about Facebook that arose out of the election. But uh, one radio interviewer last week asked me, accused me of mouthing conventional wisdom by criticizing these tech companies, I thought, wow, the zeitgeist really has turned. <laughs> well, let's, before we get into some of these criticisms, I think it's important to understand, because it's amazing, these companies have just risen to power really fast. I think sometimes we take for granted how fast they've come to dominate life, our lives. But I think to understand how that happened, we need to understand the philosophical underpinnings that Sure. We're in, that that exist in Silicon Valley. So, what are those underpinnings, and what? How has that helped them, or sort of not helped them? You know, directed how they've managed their businesses to where they're grown to these giant behemoths. Well, one of the totally fascinating uh, facts about Silicon Valley is that it wasn't just the birthplace of Apple, the internet, the personal computer. It was also the place where the counterculture came into being. So. Alongside Steve Jobs, you had the Grateful Dead, you had LSD, you had the communes. And a lot of the spirit of the counterculture rubbed off on technology as technology rubbed off on the spirit of the counterculture. And you had in the late 60s and early 70s a bunch of people headed off to uh, to communes. 
which was a doom, a bit of a doomed experiment. But that real spirit of wanting to tie everybody together in a communal sort of way of using technology to try to gin up a different sort of consciousness in the same sort of way that LSD had produced a different sort of consciousness. Those ideas came to infuse our ideas about technology. And one of the most powerful ideas about technology that we have is this idea of stitching the world together into one and creating these massive new mechanisms, these, these communes really that we can exist in. And that in Silicon Valley, that became the basis for the idea of the network, which is so ubiquitous or all these ideas about, we think of Silicon Valley as being kind of libertarian, which it is to a certain extent, but it's also fundamentally collectivist. And you see it in the concepts of crowdsourcing, social media, collaboration, and networking. And these ideas, this, these networks, these, these kind of giant communes that they build are beautiful dreams, but when they get captured by big firms, they become the basis for monopoly. Yeah. I mean, I think that that weird tension between libertarian individualism and this utopian collectivism is really weird because you do see it. It's like, I feel like the libertarianism, like there's like a few guys that's like, well, I'm the guy who can create this utopian collective network. Mm-hmm. And so like that, they encourage like, you know, as little regulations as possible yeah. so they can achieve that. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, there's a way in which they're just asking for libertarianism for themselves and collectivism for everybody else. And you see what you're getting at, I think is one of the big themes of my book, which is that there's, there's hypocrisy that runs through a lot of these companies that they, they insist on transparency and sharing in everybody else's lives. But when it comes to revealing how their algorithms work, they're completely opaque. Or, you know, Facebook is all about sharing, but they were so reluctant to share basic information about what Russian ads were built, were bought during the campaign. Yeah. And I mean, so one of the arguments, so this collectivist idea of of creating a monopoly, like this is their idea of a lot of you hear a lot in Silicon Valley is monopolies are good. Yeah. So why do they, okay, you know, you you grew up in high school learning about how monopolies are terrible. Mm -hmm. You had Teddy Roosevelt busting the trust. What, why do they think monopolies are a good thing? Well, I think there's a business principle behind it, which is that they believe that the world operates as a series of networks. And so you can see this, and this is an old idea. I mean, railroads were networks that tied people together. The phone companies operated networks that tied people together. Facebook is a network that ties people together. Google is a network that ties people into Google. And the principle is that these networks work most efficiently when there's only one. It just doesn't make sense for there to be, since Facebook is kind of a global telephone book, it doesn't make sense for there to be two global telephone books or, or it's a mechanism for staying in touch with people around the world. Well, what if what if there were two of them and we, we, we were on, it would just be sloppy. And so it's the raison d'etre is kind of this idea of oneness. The business idea is the one of oneness. And so in Silicon Valley, you have the sense that once a firm captures the network, it's not even worth competing with them because being second place in the network is just not going to yield a huge financial gain. But it is, I mean, it, there is a way in which all this is very different than the monopolies of old. First is that these guys just possess so much data, which is 
this intimate window inside your head, this history of everything that you've read, everywhere you've traveled, everything that you've bought, which is then used to kind of increase your dependence on the network to keep you engaged for as long as possible. Or you could even see it, say to addict you to their products. The second thing is, is that these companies are just so ambitious. So there, there was kind of a limit to what the railroads could swallow, even as they tried to swallow up a bunch of stuff. And these companies are everything companies. Google started off wanting to organize knowledge. Now it's building self-driving cars. It's got a life sciences company that's trying to defeat death. Amazon started off as the everything store, and now it's a movie studio. It owns the Washington Post. It owns Whole Foods. It powers the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. And there's really no end to the et cetera's. Yeah. I mean, what's crazy though, you know, back in the 19th century, going back to the railroads and the telephone companies, even in the middle of the 20th century, is that people, the government and the public were like leery of monopolies and like they made, took actions to, you know, break those up. What's changed in the 21st century where people and even the government like, well, okay, that's, if Whole Foods wants to buy, or if Amazon wants to buy Whole Foods, okay, that's great. (laughs) Let's, Let's go ahead and do that. What changed was in the 1960s, there was a famous article written by a law professor uh, called Robert Bork. And Robert Bork would later become famous because Ronald Reagan nominated him to the Supreme Court and his nomination was derailed by Democrats. You got borked. He got borked. He got borked. He got borked. All right. So borking. uh, And and you know what else got borked was our antitrust laws because – once upon a time, there was our antitrust laws existed in order to preserve democracy. That there was this fear that once you had private power start to amass into massive con- to amass into to large concentrations, that they would just be able to become way too influential in Washington and in elections, etc. But with Bork, the concern shifted to uh, to a concept that he called consumer welfare, and so in his view. Everything was about price. So, so long as a big company kept prices low and so long as it didn't use outrageously bullying behavior on customers or on competitors, then there was no problem with it. And so everything in our antitrust laws became about price and efficiency. And that was a big, it was a big turnaround in the concept of antitrust. And what you've seen is every year since Robert Bork wrote his famous article in the 60s, our interpretation of the antitrust laws has narrowed further and further until you know, in the Obama administration, I don't think uh, they, they, they I don't think they broke up a company. You know, they did a lot to, to limit mergers. But this idea that a company has become too big and powerful in its sector and deserves to be broken up is just com- completely fallen by the wayside, even though that was once something that the government would routinely do. Right. So Bork did have, I mean, and these the monopolists do have a point. Like it does allow, does create lower prices, right? That, that- yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just, can I be clear about one thing, which is that I like, I think Google's an incredible invention. I think iPhones are, are gorgeous pieces of engineering and design. And I don't think we want to throw them all into the ocean and go back to some sort of world before the internet. I mean, not, not at all. I think we want to try to capture the good parts of it. But when it comes to antitrust, what you're saying is totally true, which is that Google and Facebook are free. 
like you can't argue that they're bad for consumers on those grounds, right? And Amazon keeps prices incredibly low. And so if, if antitrust is going to have an issue with these, if we're going to care about these monopolies, we need to shift back to a pre-Bork sort of paradigm for considering companies. So as, as a threat to democracy or the government or something like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, which is, I mean, which is really, I mean, that is, that's the core threat here. And so not just to democracy and the government, but I also think there are these questions about privacy that loom extremely large. And I do think that there are, there are questions about the ways they treat competitors. For instance, I mean, the classic example is the way that Google treated Yelp. So once upon a time, when you wanted to go to dinner, you typed in you typed in the restaurant's name into Google, and a Yelp review came out. And then Google saw that and said, "Ah, oh, Yelp is a pretty good business. We should be owning that space." And so Google started to aggregate reviews. And what do you know? When you type the restaurant's name into Google, suddenly Yelp got pushed down by the algorithm. And so Google was creating a marketplace that advantaged itself. And so I don't want to completely surrender the our, our causes for economic concern. Right. And you, I guess Amazon does this too. Like they're, they're tracking data on which products sell well and they'll end up just creating that company for themselves to sell that product. I think there's like a report that came out that like there's a lot of brands that Amazon owns that people don't know that Amazon owns. Yeah. And I was just reading an article this morning in the New York Times that was describing the way in which Amazon, so Amazon doesn't really like the book publishers and it's kind of allowed for a shadowy gray market to exist where you can buy books used that have been, that are basically review copies that have been purchased or other copies that have been bought on, that have been bought on a, on a secondary market. And they use that to undercut the, the, the list price that, that has been set by the publishers and that Amazon seemingly has accepted. And so the point is that Amazon is not operating on the basis of fair market rules. They're not abiding by contracts. Uh, they're kind of allowing the system to exist in order to sneakily stick it to these publishers who've been a pain in their ass. <laughs> well, I mean, besides this threat to you know privacy, um, to democracy, et cetera, I mean, I think one of the underlying threats, you made this pretty explicit, was just these companies are a threat to like just the idea of the individual, or individuality or individualism. Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit more? Right. Well, I mean, at the biggest level, if you think about it this way, these machines are they are just different than other machines, right? So uh, we've had tools ever since we emerged as a species. We've had hammers, we've had plows, we've had factories that have automated upper body strength. But these machines are intellectual machines and that they, they're designed to amplify and replace intellectual activities. And um, a lot of that is great. So I don't need to worry about sense of direction anymore because I've got Google Maps and Waze. But it also means that when I'm merging with my machine, I'm, I'm, merging, with, I'm merging with the companies that operate those machines. And these companies have an agenda for influencing us. They have a view of human nature where they're trying to, to steer us. And it's towards a vision where we're integrated into their systems in the way that they want that make them the most money. And 
to me, the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues has to do with the ways in which they commandeer our attention. So this is the one that will be most, the example that will be, I think, familiar to every single one of your listeners, which is the iPhone is, it's like constantly beckoning us. If it's in another room, we feel like a limb has been cut off our body. And in this kind of almost Pavlovian sort of way, these phones have been reverse engineered to, to, to mean that they're always, they're always screaming for our attention. They buzz constantly with notifications. We sleep with our phones. And it's in a way they're trying to, they're trying to, they're trying to own our attention. They want us, they want everything to be on their platforms. And it's incredibly destructive to our ability to, to be, to have a sense of self, to be, to be individuals <laughs> when you're, when we're just kind of all guinea pigs in this experiment that they're running on us. Right. Speaking of experiments, like Facebook has admitted to running giant social experiments where they've been able to sway people to do certain things just based on the information they, you know, present to the user. Totally. And uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that because when I talk about this a lot of times, I think people look at me like I'm a crank and that I'm concocting some sort of conspiracy. But really, a lot of this is just so explicit that Facebook has submitted to social scientists using its platforms in a way to, to run experiments on, on us as individuals where they try to manipulate our emotional mood or they try to sway us to go to the voting booth. They, they, they're just incredibly explicit about how, you know, if you work for these companies, you know that everything is being tested all the time to maximize engagement, to maximize the amount of time that you spend on a site. And so headlines are being manipulated. The use of photos is being manipulated. The way in which information on Facebook is ordered is being manipulated all to increase your levels of engagement. Right. I mean, one of the other arguments you make, sort of the hypocrisy of these companies, is that they, they say that they've taken, they've eliminated the gatekeepers, right? Right, There's right. No more publishers, no more editors, no more, you know, people saying what can and cannot or what is worth, you know, putting out there. But you argue like, no, they've just, they're the gatekeepers now. They are the gatekeepers. They're the biggest, most powerful gatekeepers in a way in human history. And there is this hypocrisy about it um, where they, they've amassed all this power. Um, everything flows through their gates. Journalism is hugely dependent on Facebook and Google for traffic and therefore for revenue. Publishing is totally dependent on Amazon. And they're just uh, massive chunks of the economy that are dependent on these companies. And these companies have the ability to pick winners and losers. What Facebook decides comes up highest in these algorithms are going to be the things that are going to be most popular. The things that they decide to suppress in their algorithms are going to be the things that, that don't get attention. And it's an incredible amount of power, yet they, they claim to have, they, they, they refuse to admit that they hold that sort of power, which is part of the reason why they've come under such heated attack right now after the election that we can see that they created a system in which fake news propaganda have flourished, the ways in which it was so easy for 
bad actors to come into their system and to use it in order to manipulate people. Yet Facebook was incredibly reluctant to admit that it had any responsibility over any of that. And going back to the consumer, how these monopolies hurt consumers, like, hey, we get free information, low prices at Amazon, but, you know, you argue that, that like, the quality of that information we get for free has gotten crappier. Yes. Uh, right? Because, like, you, you, you're, you know, your example of the New Republic is a great example. First, you know, it, was, it took pride in writing these very long-form, in-depth, thorough articles, and then you were left having to write clickbaity you know, you don't won't believe what happened next type stuff in order to drive traffic because that's what does well on these social platforms. Right, exactly. And that it's created, this is another way in which it's, it's kind of destroying individuality, which is that everybody who depends on Facebook is constantly trying to latch onto the thing that's trending that is most popular there because what Facebook wants are the things that are going to be popular. Those are going to be the things that will keep people most engaged. And so there's this shift in ethos towards the Facebook ethos, which Facebook looks like it's promoting individual individual expression. And it does to some extent. But on balance, you'd have to say that it's also created a new herd mentality, a new form of, of conformism and uh, homogenization. Right, right. Yeah, and I guess another example, you talk about the publishing industry, how Amazon allows anyone to publish a book, but a lot of those books are just garbage. <laughs> it's, right? you just have these, unfortunately. <laughs> right, I mean, you have people just cranking out, like especially in the fiction world, just cranking out like fiction books, like faster than just like the these like dime store, you know, uh, Westerns from the 19th century. It's just just trying to make as much money as possible, but uh, Amazon allows that. Well, Amazon doesn't just allow it, it encourages it because it's it's a thing that uh, Amazon is no different than these other companies. They want addictive products. It's true in the realm of television and video, by the way, too, where the quality is sometimes higher, but this idea of binge watching is, is uh, you know, again, they want your attention for as long as possible. And we're just in the early days of the ways in which that's going to be monetized. I mean, as Amazon turns turns more and more to advertising, your binge watching is going to be a bigger and bigger source revenue for them. And so this is this is not a new phenomenon. We've always been, you know, the, the couch potato is a time-honored American tradition. But given the data that they have and the way that they understand you, their ability to addict you is going to be much, much higher. And the, the quali- But just to return to your, what you're, you're trying to bring out of me, which is this point about quality, which I think is hugely important. Because if you, if you think about it, as citizens, we have to make really important decisions every couple of years about who gets elected to public office. And in order to make good decisions, we need to have good information. And if Facebook is just giving us what we what it thinks that we want, it means it's confirming our bias uh, biases and it, it's in some ways intellectually incapacitating us. And so the implications for democracy are pretty catastrophic. Yeah, no, so the existential threat. Uh, you know, the other thing, like, talking about the democratization and, like, the worsening of quality of content, like, 
Instagram comedians are the bane of my existence <laughs> and YouTube comedians. Like they're not funny at all, but, yeah. but they do like they, they do well on the platform for some reason. I don't know. I'm on, I'm on this mission to take down Instagram comedians. All right. We'll see if we can ha- make it happen. I, I, you know what? I, I hadn't really fully appreciated the ways in which my thesis could be spun off and applied to other vectors of human life. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think Jerry Seinfeld has complained about that before comedians and, you know, people who write for television, they had to like, they were put through the ringer, right? You no longer have to do that. And so as a consequence, you don't really get the cream anymore rising to the top. Right. Right. Well, so I mean, what's the solution to this? Is it just, okay, you said it's like, we don't have to give up on the internet, but what do we do to counter that? Or if, you know, we're, you know, yeah, what can we do on our, on our, a personal level and maybe on a societal level? Right. So we've talked a little bit about some of the policy solutions about the return, the possibility of having taken those anti-monopoly laws that have grown so dusty and, and hauling them off the shelf and applying them. I think we could think about, we could think of even about breaking up some of these companies. The Europeans are moving to, in a way, break up Google, try to sever some of its advertising business from some of the search business. Could easily imagine doing the same thing to Facebook here. It's gobsmacking, just truly gobsmacking that there's no law protecting your data, given how intimate, you know, we tell, we tell our machines things that we would never tell our friends. And these companies are sitting there holding that data, sometimes selling it on an open market and it needs to be protected on a personal level. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you sleep with your phone? I don't. Well, God bless you. Uh, (laughs) When did you decide to give that up or did you never do it? I mean, I just never really did it. I just kind of, I don't really wherever my phone ends up, that's where it, that where it ends up, and that usually is not by me. So, so there's that. I also don't have a personal Facebook account. Wow, wow! I stopped. You, you are the resistance. I am the resist, and it's, it's it's that it's for that reason. Like, because I'm I'm just freaked out by how much Facebook can know about you. So I was yeah. like, I got I got to stop that. Well, I mean, look, it's really hard. It's better. It's almost better to not start than to engage and try to disengage because. The, the the human reasons for for kind of being drawn to these devices, the the way in which we crave attention, the way in which we all of our anxieties and insecurities are amplified by these devices is kind of horrifying. And once you're once you're once you're stuck in their experiments, it's really it's very very hard to get out. And so, I mean, I struggle with this. I honestly struggle with this. I've taken I don't have Facebook on my phone anymore. I shot. I, I killed all the notifications on my phone. I I try not to sleep with my phone, although there are nights where I find myself kind of doing it um, because I want to listen to a podcast, say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or um, because I, you know, you, you decide that you need your alarm and you don't have an old-fashioned alarm clock nearby because you're traveling or what have you. And Facebook is just damn. It's like I don't. I don't really do a whole lot of posting on it. But the voyeuristic aspect of it is so real. Um, and I don't know if you use Twitter, but it's like when you tweet something, you sit around waiting for to see how people respond to it. And it, it's like this craving of affirmation and this desire not to say something that causes people to shame you. I mean, there's, it's, it's really these the emotions that they're messing with are really, really powerful. I would just say 
that when it, that, you know, we, we, there, we've got lots of other powerful forces in our lives when it comes to the foods that we eat and our compulsion to, to chow down or, uh, there's, there's alcohol or what have you. And we learn to, we learn to eat and drink with, with relative moderation, except for, um, some outlier cases. And I think it's possible even despite all the powerful forces at work to do the same thing with technology, just to, to use it in a balanced sort of way where you're able to reap its benefits without permitting yourself to, to be a lab rat in their experiment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a problem with like the social networks, Facebook or Twitter, like Amazon's the one that freaks me out because we, we do have Alexa in our house and I don't know about Alexa. I'm kind of, I'm a little suspicious of her now. I don't know if she's like always listening to what I'm saying. Could be, I don't know. Whoa, whoa. I mean, I, it's, it's amazing you even have a question about that. Of course, Alexa's <laughs> always listening. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. If you say Alexa, she's like, what's up? Yeah. But is she also listening to just conversations? I mean, they, they could do that, right? Amazon could sneak in something in their terms of service. They're like, we, we do this. And then, then when you go to amazon.com, you see an ad or you see like a product recommended product for this thing you were talking about with your wife, right? That could happen. That, and that's creepy. That is really creepy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the design, right? Is that you're supposed to be the idea is that these companies, these devices are supposed to know you in a way that better than you know yourself. And that way they can anticipate your desires and they can, I mean, this is, this is another aspect in which individualism and individuality are threatened is that these companies want you to offload decision-making onto them. So here's the creepiest, the creepiest thing that I think is bubbling up, which is, I don't know if you've listened to either Zuckerberg or Elon Musk talk about how they want to read your brainwaves. Right. Yeah. I don't don't like that. I don't know how the hell that could happen. I mean, it it seems like it seems so outrageous to me that that could actually be developed uh, just on a scientific level. It, I don't, I don't get it. But then again, I never really imagined that you'd have a handheld device where you'd be able to watch every television show ever created or every book ever read. That was like a fantasy that was kind of beyond my wildest imaginations as a kid. So maybe they can pull it off. Maybe they pull it off. Yeah, they want you to become part of the hive mind. The, the, the new, was it new, N-U-U or something like that? I don't know. The idea that, that uh, Facebook could, like, I wouldn't even need to type. It would just, it would just my, my, I could just think and it would suddenly post or it would suddenly reveal whatever my, my, my inner thoughts are. I mean, it seems to me to basically that kind of exposes the agenda of the company, right? That that's their that that's their next end goal. I mean, that is that is the that is the complete disappearance of privacy when somebody's able to read your brain. Yeah, like Zuckerberg has made that like he wants that to happen. Like he says, we want <laughs> like he wants to get rid of privacy. Yeah, because he because he, he, he says it, it's good it's good for society, right? Like you put it all out in the air. Look. If, um, if your girlfriend, if your girlfriend knew, like if, if, if you, if there was a possibility of your girlfriend knowing that you were cheating on her, you wouldn't cheat. And that's kind of basically what he's saying because of that. And that that's a bit, that's basically what he's saying that if our public selves merged with our private selves, we would be, we'd be morally better human beings. And we would also 
he also claims we would be more forgiving of other people because everybody else, everybody would constantly be making mistakes and those mistakes would be exposed. So you're right. I mean, it's, it's, I always, I find it fascinating to sit there and read through um, everything that he said on this subject simply because it's so radical and there's such a, there's such a, such a loud view of human nature embedded in right. what he's saying. And it creeps the hell out of Yeah. But then also going back to the idea of diminishes individual individuality, like if you know your thoughts are being read, like you are less likely to engage with possibly, I don't know what to say, just like risky thoughts, like risky ideas, which that could put a stifle on all sorts of things, scientific advancements, advancements in psychology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, were you just reading my brain right now? Yeah, I was. Because sort of, eerily, that was what I was thinking. <laughs> No, but you're already kind of seeing that already. People censor themselves, self-censor online, because you might get, for you know, it gets picked up on Twitter, and then the the mob comes out with the pitchforks. And well, it's not even just on Twitter. Here's here's an example from everyday life, which is when I was when I was started working, offices were a thing then, and so you had doors that you could close while you were working, and people would come into your office, and you could talk behind closed doors with them. And so if you had an idea that you were thinking about for some new thing, you could tell somebody that new idea in private without worrying about the embarrassment of saying something stupid or saying something that was offensive. But now everybody works in an open office space and conversations happen on Slack or other chat platforms. And so every idea is now turned around in public. And so if you have a new idea, you're not closing the door. You have to think before you post. And so you become more cautious in pitching new ideas. You become, you become more terrified about offending or about, about – you just become, you become, as you say, less, less subversive. You become less innovative. You become, you become flattened as an individual in that type of environment. Right, which goes against the argument that the Silicon Valley people make that uh, you know, out, out you know, open source stuff leads to better things. Not necessarily the case. No, I, 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 mean, I don't, I, I don't know why. I mean, these things get uh, become so ideological in Silicon Valley, where um, openness, transparency, these things become become mantras that they try to force onto everybody else when. All right. In some instances, they're great and they work really well. Like Wikipedia is an amazing thing, and we shouldn't—we don't want Wikipedia to disappear. It's a great example of collaboration working. But you know, I don't think that that's necessarily should become our foundational belief for the future of human civilization, which is the way that they tend to carry their ideas. So I'm curious: Have you noticed any weird things with your book on Amazon? Or Facebook because of the things you say about them. Yeah, man, I'd be, I be. I, I don't know why I'm not number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I think it's Amazon keeping me down. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I. I don't think they're messing with me. <laughs> right now, as I was reading this, I was like, I wonder. Huh, okay, I wonder if Amazon's gonna put the kibosh on his book. Well, hey, uh, Franklin, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Well, there's this invention called the internet. <laughs> you know, I. I, I, I don't love it in its entirety, but I like a lot of it. And if you were to go to, you know, fire up DuckDuckGo 
or Bing. Duck, duck. Yeah, that's that's what I, I that's what I use for search. That's my my default search too. I'm trying to like do what I can to fight. I'm the I'm, yeah. I'm the resist. I'm part of the resistance. Or you know what? Here's something I, I want to like your your listeners in on a secret. If you get in your car somewhere within proximity of your house, I think that there might be a store where they sell books. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not so not not Amazon. Go to a store. No, I mean, look, I, I, far far be it for me to to dissuade your listeners from buying my book on Amazon. If they if they bought my book on Amazon, look, I, I know your your podcast is a, is a judgment free zone, so I don't think that they should feel any sense of social program. No, they, for, for doing that, we're we're big proponents of being an individual, Rug, yeah. rugged individual. You do what you want. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, Franklin Four, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Okay, real fun. Thank you. My guest today was Franklin Four. He's the author of the book World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. It's available, of course, on Amazon, which we talked about today. Or if you don't want to do that, go to your local bookstore and pick up a copy there as well. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash worldwithoutmind, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please share the show with your friends. That's how the show grows is word of mouth. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. are true We're overwhelming power the sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 